Good morning, village. Ooh. Just wanted to make sure you hear me. <laughs> it's good to be back together. I always love the week after Easter, and we, we've worshiped together on Easter, and then we see how God works and how we live the resurrection that week. I know um, many of you took gift cards last week with our Titus Initiative. Can't wait to hear how some of those things turned out. And we have a new supply of gift cards today. So um, if you didn't get a chance to participate, um, please, after the service, go to the table. If you gave one out and want to give another one out, then absolutely grab another one. And we'll be talking a little bit more about some response cards that we have. Um, we'll talk about those towards the end of the, the message today. But I'm excited to see Village getting out of our comfort zones and on the move to try to do things to advance the kingdom of God, to try to do things to create gospel conversations to be intentional about creating gospel conversations. Those are are vital to what we do. But today's text, I think, will be a little bit of a warning to, to that. And not that we shouldn't do that, but as we step out as a church, as the early church stepped out and did God's work and did what God wanted them to do, Satan always tried to stop it. Always. So whenever we're doing God's work, whenever we're making inroads into Satan's, what he thinks is his realm, he will fight like a cornered cat. And if you've ever cornered a cat, a wild cat, it is not pretty. And so we're going to see as we do these things, Satan step up his attacks. I'm reminded of the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have read that? It is a fantastic read. I recommend it for every believer. Um, and it's written, and you have to understand, because I'm going to give some quotes uh, out of it, and you have to understand the context of the quotes are two devils talking to each other. And so when they say the enemy, that enemy is God. Okay, so, so understand, otherwise these quotes will sound really bizarre. But um, this is from the standpoint of two devils, an uncle and his nephew, trying to write these letters. Okay, how can we distract Christians? How can we keep Christians from doing God's work? And so there, there's things like this, and, and, and the uncle is giving his sage advice to this, this new demon as he attempts to deceive and distract. And he says this, and I'll just read some of the quotes throughout the book because I think it gives a flavor. Everything is clearly going very well. I am especially glad to hear that the two new friends have now made him acquainted with their whole set. All these, as I find from the record office, are thoroughly reliable people. Remember, we're talking reliable from a... a demon's point of view. They're thoroughly reliable people, steady, consistent scoffers and worldlings who without any spectacular crimes are progressing quietly and comfortably toward our father's house. Our father's house being Satan's house. Again, as I read it, I'm like, why would these people be going to heaven? Oh, wait, 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 wait. And and in this advice, he's like, keep some of those friends that are scoffers, that are slanderers, that are saying things they shouldn't say. Those are going to help distract. Those are, are, are going to help our cause, he's saying. Another piece of advice he gave. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only under conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. A moderated religion is as good as for us as no religion at all and more amusing. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy or against God. He wants men to be concerned with what they do for him. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. 
And in that, just a, a little bit later, tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Let me repeat that. Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. And as we come to the text today, as we come to Satan's threats, his attacks on the work of God, those are the two areas he he attacks. He tries to use fear of what will happen and fear of the danger and fear of what people are saying and the slander and the lies. Or stupid confidence tries to use fame and success to stop Paul and Barnabas. But a phrase that, that we'll use a lot today, Paul and Barnabas stuck to it. They stayed the course. And they were courageous men that in the face of these distractions kept going. As you know, in in our journey through Acts, we took a little break for Easter last week, but Paul and Barnabas are still on their first missionary journey. This whole journey probably took about a year, and and they had been run out of Antioch last time when Pastor Andrew was, was speaking, run out of Antioch and Pisidia, and shook the dust off their feet. Remember that? They're like, we're just getting rid of these guys, um, a little bit of a, um, you know, your choice is yours, and you have to answer to God. And they left and went to Iconium. And so we pick up today in, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, when they get to Iconium. And we get to see what happens there. Because obviously when you're, you're sharing the gospel with people that don't know him, it's easy. There's no problems. There's no distractions. Nothing to worry about. Well, no. They are on the front lines. And when we are on the front lines, like I said, Satan will attack. So turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And if I had to summarize the text today, it's in spite of Satan's attempts to derail God's work through slander, lies, fame, and harm, Paul and Barnabas stayed the course and stuck to God's work, seeing many saved and encouraged. Let me read that again. In spite of Satan's attempts to derail God's work through slander, lies, fame, and harm, Paul and Barnabas stayed the course and stuck to God's work, seeing many saved and encouraged. So as we go through this, we want to see some of the ways Satan tried to stop the work. And we want to see the example of courage of Paul and Barnabas that they continued on. Acts chapter 14, and we'll be starting in verse 1. We'll take the whole chapter today and we'll move through it as we finish the first missionary journey. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Right here, Luke is a master of words, and he gives us the setting, he gives us what's happening. So much is covered here, but we get to Iconium, and and today we're going to get some maps, because I think it's, well, I just had fun always looking at the back of my Bible for maps. And we're going to look at where Iconium is and where they are. And and yes, point number one, we'll get back to point number one. (laughs) And so we know on this missionary journey, they left Antioch and Syria, they came down to Cyprus went up to, to Perga here, then up to Antioch, where we talked last time, and then they got run out of Antioch, and so they came down to Iconium here. And so Iconium is a town that's on one of the major trade routes, and it seems like every major town we talk about was on a major trade route. That's because they were. That's what sort of defined how a town formed and, and how it grew. And so this was a, a Roman-sympathizing town that was on a major trade route, and a little bit of a bigger town, not the biggest we've seen, but, but a decent hub of civiliz- civilization. And so they come there, and this, this is about a 90-mile trek from Antioch to Iconium. I know it looks really small there and, you know, just a few steps, but no, it's about a 90-mile trek, and so it would have taken them a couple days. 
And this is central to the modern region of Turkey. So if you, if you were to overlay a map of today, this is the, the modern region of Turkey. We have Galatia close by, and we're going to see Lycaonia today, and that region. And so this is where they're at. Um, Sidney, like I said, was friendly to Rome, was honored by the Emperor Claudius just before Paul's visit. And so this is a, a place where God wanted to work and God wanted to spread the gospel. As was his custom, we saw in verse 1, Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue. And, and I think they did this for a couple reasons. We see this throughout Acts as a pattern. I think number one, they're, they're doing this to not neglect the Jews and, and the Jewish nation and to give them, to continue to give them a chance at the gospel. But then the other, just practically, if you were to go into a town, where would you possibly find God-fearing Gentiles? Probably the synagogue, right? And so they knew to go there, and, and this is where they started. And then when they were run out of the synagogue, they'd preach in the streets. And, and so this was a, a pattern that they would follow. What else do you see in verse 1, though? They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. God was doing a work. People were coming to Him left and right, both Jews and Gentiles. And so across the board, the church is starting in Iconium. Things are going well. And that's verse 1. Because then we get to the but in verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so right from the start, you get this picture of things going well, and then some of the people that that were unbelieving that opposed them begin to talk. And they begin to whisper. And they begin to say things. And they're stirring people up. And they're spreading poison. The idea of stirring up is to put a thought of distrust. Well, what about this? What do you think they're doing about this? Well, I don't know about, maybe they're wrong in this area, or, or maybe they're doing this behind closed doors, and, and all these are stirring people up with lies and slander, poisoning their minds, causing their minds to think evil of someone, is what that means. And so in, in our, in today, we would say slander and lies. Paul and Barnabas were being lied about to the people they're trying to, to minister to. And Satan was doing that to try to undermine their ministry, to try to cut off the, the, them off at the knees and keep them from having this kind of success. So verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so from that verse, we get the, the wording of point number one. Satan attempted to use lies and slander to damage the work of God. But they stuck to it. Satan attempted to use lies and slander to damage the work of God. But they stuck to it. Now at this point, people are saying things about you. People are under, under, um, undermining ministry. There's, there's criticism. You know, All these things are starting to happen. At this point, it might be a good time to leave, right? Okay, let's move on. So we get to verse 3. And verse 3 is directly tied to the verses before. So they remained for a long time. And, and the, there's some, some more current scholarship, liberal scholarship is like, well, no one would actually say there, stay there, so this verse has to be wrong. Do they not understand God's courage? Do they not understand the work of God? The so, it's a therefore, it's tied with verse 2. The idea is this. So because there was this uprising of things against them, they said, let's stay longer. Let's preach God's word stronger. Let's make sure they hear 
Obviously, if there's a tax here, then God is doing something here. And so they chose to stay. And so verse 3, they stayed. And, and they stayed a long time. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so they didn't run. Instead, they're like, people need Christ. Obviously, they need it now because there's a bad element here. And three things they did. They stayed a long time out of courage, out of a a desire to see people come to Him. They spoke boldly for the Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they didn't back down. They didn't hedge their message because people were lying about them. They said, you know what? This is the truth. This is what Jesus did. You need Him. They stayed a long time. They spoke boldly for the Lord. And then God acted to confirm their message. That's the the last part of, of three there. We see that God blessed them for that. It says, For the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It's the Lord who's bearing witness to the word. And He's doing it through miracles. And so He's like, okay, you're speaking boldly. You're saying you're being faithful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give sort of my stamp of approval, stamp of confirmation. And so God used the fact that they were courageous and stayed for His kingdom. John Wesley tells a story which I, I think is humorous, not quite where we want to go, but he's trying to illustrate courage in the face of, um, of danger or, or struggle. Um, he's, he said he once encountered a village bully when their carriages met along a narrow road, for us maybe it's cars, you know, I don't know. Their carriages met along a narrow road. The bully knew Wesley disliked him, knew Wesley and disliked him, and would not give him any leeway. Staying in the middle of the road, John Wesley cheerfully gave the man the entire road, even though he had to turn into the ditch. As they passed, the bully said, I never turn out for fools. And Wesley, all five foot two of them, retorted, I always do. I am not saying we should be snarky like that. But, but what this author was trying to show is the courage of not backing down, of staying, and of continuing. Yeah, yeah we don't want to get, get sarcastic like that and um, harsh, but of staying and of, of not letting it rattle us, not letting it shake us. We go on to verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And so we see this divided response. And that's going to happen whenever we share the gospel. Some people are going to respond. Some people aren't. And, and we should expect that. We should not worry about that because the, the beauty of it is you and I don't guarantee the response. You and I aren't the ones that work in the hearts. You and I aren't the ones that, that bring conviction. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're just called to say, here's the gospel. Here's the truth. God loves you, wants relationship with you. We've turned our backs on Him because of sin. So He sent His Son to live a sin-free life and carry the penalty for our sins. And He died on the cross. And as we talked about last week, He rose again the third day. That's got to be part of our proclamation. And if you repent of your sins and believe in Him, you can be saved. That's our job. Share that. Let the Holy Spirit worry about the results. In this case... Paul and Barnabas, we're probably not going to share better than them. Paul and Barnabas had half and half. They had a divided response. And we can look at it and say, oh man, some people didn't like the message. Or we can look at it and say, that's half the people that are now in the kingdom because they stayed and were courageous. 
That's awesome. And so we see that people did come to Christ. But they were divided. And then verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat, mistreat them and to stone them. And so they stayed until it just got too bad to stay and the Holy Spirit moved them on. And, and the wording here has the idea not of a court proceeding and not of an official declaration. This looks like a mob action. That people got together and the mob and some of the leaders joined them and the people of the town were like, we're going to kill them. And we're picking up stones and we're going to make sure this happens. And the Holy Spirit said, okay, now, you've stayed a long time. You've, you've finished the course at Iconium. Now's the time to move on. And so we read that they did move on. And they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And so they left. And if we look back at our map, they're in Iconium. They come down to Lystra and Derby will be the, the next towns they go to. Lystra will be next. Our next um, story in the chapter is there. And then we're going to see them move on to Derby. But what does it say in verse 7? And there they continued to preach the gospel. So in the face of lies, in the face of slander, in the face of people taking up arms to harm them or rocks to harm them, they eventually did have to leave, but it never stopped them from the, from the work. It never stopped them from preaching the gospel. It just moved the location. And more people got to hear. And so in the face of that, they stuck to it. And what an amazing testimony. I, I think of this, this whole story. And again, this is the lies and slander part of the title. And, and I think, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? And, and when we think about it, how do we handle slander? Do you like being lied about? No, no, please don't raise your hand. I mean, not even, none of us like being lied about. Do you like being slandered? Now imagine if you're in ministry and those, you know, maybe you're working with kids ministry and someone starts to spread lies about how you treat the kids or, or maybe you work in youth ministry and someone's starting to spread lies about that. When it's things that undermine our ministry, it hits really deep. And if we think about it, it hurts. It hurts and it makes us angry and discouraged. And it can be easy in that kind of setting to say, I'm done. I'm, I can't handle the criticism. I can't handle what people are say, saying. I'm done. But what did Paul and Barnabas do? They stayed. And they stayed longer and got bolder and made sure they did the work of God. And so take courage. If you've been slandered, if people have stirred up rumors about you, take courage. It's hard. I'm not denying that. But like Paul and Barnabas, keep going and trust God with the truth. Do you know that God can defend you? That's an obvious statement of the day, right? But do you believe God can defend you? Now, when, things, when we hear things like this, it attacks our pride. It, it discourages us. I get that. But can we keep going? Because God's work is the main thing. Not my reputation. Not your reputation. God's work is the main thing. 
Now, I, I think with this, there's some other biblical principles. Try to make things right. Go to a brother or sister. Address what you can, but don't derail your motivation and your excitement for God's work. That is Satan at work, not God. That's Wormwood, Uncle Wormwood, telling his nephew what he should do to distract you. Keep your focus on God's work. And so part of the application of this is what if we're on the side where where people have said things about us that hurt, said false things about us. But then what if we're on the other end of that? What if we're the ones that are are more more, um, casual with our speech, not as careful with our speech? We need to be making sure we don't slander. We need to make sure that we don't gossip. That those things are things that we have a lid on, that even a word spoken in, in, in just a moment of weakness could affect the work of God. And again, it's about the work of God. And so we don't want to casually gossip about someone doing the work of God. We don't want to casually gossip about the work itself or about the church. This is God's bride. And so we want to be very careful. We want to be very careful with our opinions. Oh, we can voice our opinions so strongly. And we can strive to be heard, usually when we don't know the full story. And we can be used by Satan to stop God's work. We can take perceived wrongs and become embittered and attack back. And we're being used by Satan to stop God's work. So when we come to this story, we need to look deeper and say, what's happening? What can we learn from the principles in this story? And ask ourselves the question, will what I say harm God's work or will it help God's work? It's simple. It's really an easy question. Will what I'm about to do harm God's work or will it help God's work? And if it's not actively helping God's work, it might be harming and we should probably stay away from it. Will this harm the reputation of a brother or sister in Christ? Especially when I haven't gone to them. And so we we, we take this first section, Satan attempts to use lies and slander. And, And I think this is his first step because it's so easy and natural for us to fall into. We can do it behind closed doors. We can do it in ways that no one knows. And Satan's like, I'm going to undermine God's work somehow. And so then we get to verse 8. And we get to point number 2. They move on to Lystra. He hasn't stopped them from preaching. They've kept doing the right thing. They've kept doing God's work. And so he's going to try a different tact in Lystra. And and I, I see just, it's sort of fun to see him trying all these things and nothing working. Point number 2. Satan attempted to use success and fame to distract and derail God's work. Satan attempted to use success and fame to distract and derail God's work, but they directed glory back to God and stuck to it. But they directed glory back to God and stuck through it. Verse 8, let's, let's grab 8 through 10. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith, to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And so right there, this, this story should sound familiar, right? Have we seen this before? We've seen this with Peter and John, right? In the temple um, earlier in Acts, we saw Jesus heal in this way. And so Paul is ministering in the same authority, in the same vein as those other leaders that have gone before him. 
And so he's in Lystra now. We already saw the map. Lystra is a smaller city. This one actually isn't necessarily on a major trade route. I, I you know, broke, the, broke what I said for all the others. This is sort of a little bit of a backwoods town, a little bit of dirt roads to get there, an agricultural town, but it's where God sent him. And I love that the Holy Spirit sends him to a variety of places. And he, he goes in and he sees the crippled man. By the way, this is a town also that probably has very little exposure to Christianity. Very little exposure to the gospel or to Yahweh, probably. So, so, so this is a, a, um, a small town with their own um, beliefs and their own gods. And we see just a, a number of things. We see the crippled man, crippled from birth, who had never walked, just like um, Peter and John had. He listened to Paul speaking, Paul's preaching. Paul looks intently at him, sees that he has faith, sees that he's already believing in God, and says, get up, get up and walk. Stand up right on your feet. In this case, it's the faith in God that heals him, not some special power from Paul. Because Paul just happens to notice it. And he says, get up. And, and it's really fun because the parallels with, with Peter and John's healing are, are just all there. The severity and length of the disability from birth are the same. Both are dependent on handouts to survive. That's the same. Both Peter and Paul look intently, the same wordings used, they look intently at the men to raise them up. Both of the men leap up when healed. Which I guess I would too. We, you and I would. Both of the men leap up when they are healed and it, it results in passionate praise from the onlookers. And we're about to get to that here. We saw that with Peter and John and it was praise of God because they knew about God and an opportunity for the gospel goes a little different direction here in Lystra. So we get to verse 11. The man jumps up. He begins walking. Everybody around is like, that's incredible. And so in verse 11, and then the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, sorry, I can't say that word today. Um, The sea is a hard sea, and it's like, ah, it's messing me up. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And the record scratch just goes. And so basically they're saying, these are gods. They're not praising Yahweh. They are now calling Paul and Barnabas gods. It goes on to say in verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Zeus was sort of the head of the gods and maybe Barnabas had a noble way about him. But Hermes was the mouthpiece of the god, the spokesman. And since Paul was doing all the, the speaking, they're like, that's Hermes. The gods have come. What an opportunity for Paul and Barnabas. You know, they can take this praise. They can take this and sort of build their own little kingdom here. And then, you know, turn them to Yahweh and turn them to Jesus after that because they'll listen to everything they say. We're the gods. But that's not what happens. And this should bring comparisons to the Herod story we had. one of the other interesting historical things, because they're like, why did they jump to Hermes and Zeus? Why, why go there? This is a little weird. But in, in ancient legend, and we see this in some of the history, the people thought that they had already been visited by Zeus and Hermes and they missed it. And so in their legend, that Zeus and Hermes came and thousands of homes rejected them and ended up incurring the wrath of the gods because of it, it was just one older couple, Philemon and Bacchus, who were, they they were unaware of their identity, but they brought them in and showed them hospitality, and they were blessed. 
And so this is in their history. This is their legend, the stories you pass on. And so Paul and Barnabas come. They do this healing. They're like, we're not missing it this time. We're not getting the curses. We're not getting everything that happened. This is Zeus and Hermes. And so verse 13, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. If it's Zeus and Hermes, let's start worshiping. And so they're bringing oxen. They're going to kill them. They're going to offer them right here. And they're going to make sure they treat these gods right. And so they're mistaken. They have a mistaken understanding. They start to give glory to man. And like Herod, Paul and Barnabas have a choice. Do I take it? Do I enjoy it? Or or correct it and redirect it back to God? Herod chose poorly. And he couldn't worm his way out of the consequences. I had to. If, If... those of you that missed the Herod story, go back and read about the worms. That's all, that's all we'll say. Herod shows poorly, but Paul and Barnabas are going to show a different way. Before I move on to their correction though and their response, this is the danger and the temptation of success. This is the danger and temptation of fame. And I am anguished to see what evangelical leaders in our day and age have done with fame and success. And I'm angry at what some have done with fame and success. Because we have seen abuse after abuse where that has gone to their heads, where they have started to think the ministry is all about them and they could do whatever they want in ministry and they start to mistreat people and abuse people in various fashions and forms. And the work of God is stopped and it is hindered. And so it's not just lies and slander that can hinder God's work. Fame and success gone to our head can hinder God's work and stop God's work. Getting a big head, thinking we're essential to this ministry. No, none of us are essential. None of us are indispensable. Only God. Only the Holy Spirit. And so when we start to realize we're just His hands and feet, He's the one doing the work. He's the one bringing the results. He's the one that... that, creates the environment where things can happen, then we start to have a correct view of ourselves. And we must stand against it. But yet we feed it. Listening to, to a recent podcast of this happening to a church and some of the other situations, the leaders do it, but the people, we do it. We follow fame. We follow those that are charismatic leaders. We follow an experience, a a feeling. And we've got to seek truth. We've got to look for a foundation of God's Word. And you know what? It's not just leaders, though, that can get big heads. All of us in our own little ministries can feel very strongly about the ministry. We can... A little success and it goes to our head. A little success and we think we've got it wired and we're battling pride. And pride is always knocking on the door of our hearts. Always. I would argue it's the root of every sin. And it's the root of the first sins. And so we must be on guard. Success can also get us complacent. Oh, I know how to do that. We can become too self-competent. 
And what I mean by that is we can get really good at something and forget to rely on the Holy Spirit for that thing. I could come up here and preach and I could construct a sermon that looks and sounds like every other Sunday. And I could do that for a time, but if I'm not seeking in prayer the Holy Spirit every week, before every message, it loses the power because I'm not the one giving the power. The Holy Spirit is. And so we never want to get too self-competent to where we're relying on self without the need for the Holy Spirit. That applies to if you're teaching Sunday school. That applies if you're teaching kids. It applies if you're working in nursery. Because you're called to love those kids and you're taking care of them and it's not just about changing diapers. Although that's a good thing to make sure happens. It's about showing the love of Jesus to them. It's why we can come and not lose heart even when when people have great needs around us. We must be careful of fame and success or pursuing fame and success. C.S. Lewis says this, slightly different, it's about prosperity, but I think the principle applies. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. Prosperity, but I would argue fame and success could, could go right in with that. And we like it, and it finds its place in us. And so let's look at Paul and Barnabas' example. Because they give us a marvelous example of not only not giving into it, but turning it to be used for God. And so verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? And and so they, they, they tear their garments, which we can see can be repentance, but also severe distress. When blasphemy happened, people would tear their garments. And and so in this case, it's a revulsion at the blasphemy of calling them gods. They aren't. And they know it. And they are not going to take God's glory even for an instant, which is what Herod did wrong and died because of it. And so they, they, they hear about it. They tear their garments. They rush into the crowd. The idea is here, they're not even going to let this go for a moment longer than they can. And then they go into a really short and brief and powerful sermon. Paul does. Hermes does. Oh, okay, Paul. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. We're mortal, is what the wording means. We're like you. We are, we are men of like nature with you. And so he's like, stop. We aren't. He, he deals with the, the mistake first. We're not gods. We're just like you. Flesh and blood but we're bringing a message from the God. And he goes into this account in this polytheistic town that had multiple gods. He starts to tell them about the one true living God. And he starts at the beginning because they don't have a spiritual background. The, you know, we, we call ourselves in a post-Christian um, society where so many times when we share the gospel now, we have to say who Jesus is and we have to go back to creation and who God is. It's a different world than even 50 years ago of how to share the gospel. That's more what Paul is having to do here. This is a a non-Christian town. And so he comes and, and, and he begins to change it. He says, we bring you good news. And the idea is good news about the one true God, that you should turn from these vain things 
to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in a few short words, he does a couple things. First thing he does, and and we have to be careful how we take this one. He says, everything you believe is empty and worthless. All the things you're after, vain. And the word for vain means empty. It means worthless. And, and so he confronts them in, in the things that they're doing. The Hermes and Zeus, worthless. They're not alive. They're not real. They do nothing. He says, but you should turn from them. Turn away from them to a living God. And the word living is, again, think of the resurrection and, and being witnesses to the resurrection. But our God is alive. He is with us. Emmanuel still means Emmanuel. It didn't just mean that when Jesus was on earth. And so they're saying, there's a living God. Your gods are dead. And he begins to say about the living God. And the first thing he says, he goes back to creation. He made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He made everything. Zeus was the god of, of, of rain and thunder, they thought, here, and, and so would, would, would provide for crops. No, no, no. The living God made all those things. Let's go a step higher. And they powerfully share about this God. And then he goes on. In past generations, he, he has allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And that's about the end of the message. Now there's probably more here. Again, we have summaries from Luke. But catch what He's saying. He he says, everything you believe is vain. It's not true, but there is a true God that made all these things. Including everything you think your gods are controlling. And then He goes on to say, You know, he he accounts for evil in the world. And he says the reason there's evil in the world is God has allowed it. Because God isn't going to force the Gentiles to come to him. And so it says he did, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Because he wants us to come to him in relationship. He wants us to choose him. And so he, he, he accounts for evil here. And then he moves on to the evidences for God. And he talks about common grace. And he says, but he didn't leave himself without witness. He did good. He gave you the reins, which is directly against Zeus. He, he's directly saying, actually, that's from God. He gave you reins from heaven and fruitful seasons. Might those things be important for an agricultural town? And so he's like, You try to attribute it to all these other gods that you appease so that way you have a good crop. The one true living God is the one giving you those things. He is the one that you should be looking to. This should remind us of Romans 1 where Paul says, the heavens declare His majesties. That there is no one without excuse because we can look at creation and see God's fingerprint all over it. And so he talks about the common grace of rain, of crops. And and, and then he says, he satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. Good food and happy times. Good food and good times should point us back to a good God. There has to be a source of goodness. And that source is a good God. By the way, basically this is saying that good burgers and good steak with good friends points to God. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe add some Dr. Pepper in there and you've got something. 
We laugh, but there's truth to that. The fact that we can enjoy good food together and have good fellowship and, and friends and be, be knit together in our souls, these are proofs of a good God. These don't just happen. And that's his argument there. He's satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. And so for those that aren't coming to the Connect Lunch, now at the Connect Lunch, we're going to have good burgers and good company. For everyone else, go out to you with someone. Enjoy some good food. And praise God. And praise God. Verse 18. The little mini sermon's done. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So even with those words, the people were like, I don't know. You still might be Zeus and Hermes. I think we still need to sacrifice. Now they stop them. But again, this town hasn't turned to God yet. And they're just finding out about God. This is the initial stages of hearing the gospel. And so then we get to 19 through 23, point number three. And things go from worship to harm very, very quickly. Sort of like Passion Week. Verse 19, and point number three. Things got worse as the lies and slander escalated to physical attacks. Things got worse as the lies and slander escalated to physical attacks, but they found a way to keep doing God's work. Again, every point has that. Because the point isn't so much the threats of Satan, but that they had the courage and the strength from the Spirit to continue on. So verse 19. Again, remember, they're about to worship them. They're about to sacrifice for them. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Ninety miles away. 20 miles away. These are committed slanderers. (laughs) The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And so right there in one verse, things escalated. And and things moved from worship to now he's stoned and left for dead outside the city. They slandered, they lied, they persuaded, and now they escalated to actually stoning him. And I love verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, I can remember Pastor AJ's message when he was talking about Stephen. And he asked the question, where was the church? We don't have to ask that here. The church gathered around him. Literally, it means they made a circle around him. And so they are protecting him. They are are trying to, to help him. And they showed up. And so there were some disciples. Whether these are the disciples that came with them, we don't know. Or whether a few had responded to the gospel, we don't know. But we know that believers were there for him. When the disciples gathered around, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And so they tried to stone him. And he's a mess. He's passed out, but he survives. And he gets up and goes inside. Some have tried to take from that this verse that he rose from the dead, that he had died and rose from the dead. There's just not evidence textually of that. It's, it's, it's a theory, maybe, but it really looks like they just stoned him enough to knock him out, drug him out and left him there, and then the church nursed him back to health. Or, or got him up and gave him some water, probably. Next day, he goes with Barnabas to Derby Again, if we can put that map up. And so he goes from Lystra to Derby here. So he went from Iconium to Lystra, now Lystra to Derby, a little bit longer. 
but they go down to, to see what God is going to do there. Question that I was thinking, so was the stop in Lystra worthless? We didn't really see a lot of response. We, we, we saw them try to worship these men. We saw a mistaken identity. We see lies. We see slander that escalate into harm. So was this worth it? Or did the Holy Spirit make a mistake to send them to Lystra? Right there, you probably know my answer. God intended this. Turn just in your Bibles, turn just forward, little preview. Acts 16, 1 through 3. We're going to see Paul visits here again. Acts 16, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there, so he's talking Lystra, this town. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Timothy became Paul's son in the faith. In fact, that's what Paul calls him because Timothy came to the Lord because of Paul and his testimony. Was this time at Lystra worth it? Even if it was just for Timothy, it was worth it. We never know what God is doing. There are times that we share and we work and we think there are no results, right? Or we've prayed for someone for 20 or 30 years and when will they come to Christ? And we're like, I don't know if it'll ever happen. You never know how the Holy Spirit's working. Paul and Barnabas left. Didn't know. Didn't know the results. But we see later the results of Timothy. Now there were probably, again, some believers that came, but not like Iconium. But God used it. And so we move on. Paul and Barnabas went to Derby, Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, again, so they go to Derby because they're chased out. He's stoned. Um, what happens there? Preach the gospel. A whole bunch of people come to Christ. So God is on the move. God is working. Um, then they return to Lystra and Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We're going to get to 23 in a moment. So things got worse. They, they, were, they were stoned. Well, Paul was stoned. It looks like Barnabas wasn't. They move on, and God continues to work. They found a way to keep doing God's work. And in fact, in this, and I included this all together because they didn't just find the way to keep preaching, they found a way to, to expand God's work. They go to Derby. Many people are saved. So we still have the salvation aspect. And then they say, you know what? Let's go back and visit all the places. The place that stoned him. The place that wanted to stone him. The place that ran him out and he shook the dust off the feet. Let's go back and visit the churches because... I think those new believers need to be encouraged. And we see Paul's heart for the church and his his love for the church. He is willing at great risk to go back. Just for fun, let's look at the map. Again, it's already up there. They're in Derby, right? Do you see this town? Tarsus, right? Where's Paul from? Tarsus. 
and there was a road that went from Derby over here. It would have been an easier route to go here and then either grab a, a boat or a, an overland route to Antioch. It would have been faster. It would have been easier. But Paul didn't choose easy. He chose what would help the church. What would help the church at Lystra? What would help the church at Iconium? What would help the church at Antioch? What a wonderful testimony. And so they kept to it. They kept to it with a passion. They made disciples in Derby, and they encouraged the church. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, even at personal risk. They encouraged them to continue even saying through many tribulations in verse 22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so they're warning him, it's going to be tough. And when we, when, when, I, when we call you to follow Jesus with your life, even today, when we call you to follow Jesus with your life, we are not calling you to a life of, of good health and wealth. That's not the promise in Scripture. Anyone offering that is offering a lie. Paul is offering tribulation. Jesus said, my followers will be persecuted. And so here's the call today. Come to Jesus. It is the most amazing life you will ever live. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers eternity in heaven with Him. Come to Jesus and experience tribulation here. For those of you that are salesmen, that's not the way to do it. But the tribulation when you do God's work, the persecution when you do God's work is worth it because you know you're part of the truth. And you know you're part of something bigger than yourself and bringing other people into the kingdom. We know that we are step by step taking souls away from the kingdom of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of God. Territory is not lost easily by Satan. We can picture that with with all the war imagery we see right now in the news. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Then in verse 23, he equips the churches to go. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so they go back through... And they, they encourage them, but then they also set up leadership. They set up the church. They set up the structures. They pick godly men to lead the church. And they hand it off. And they say, we're praying for you. No, really, we're praying for you. Fervently, with, with fasting. You're in our hearts. And the church spread. God's work will not be stopped. It is unquenchable. Things like this chapter are where the title of our series comes from. His work is unquenchable. The gospel is unquenchable. Paul and Barnabas went through many trials just today. And people were saved and people were encouraged. Who might God want to lead to Christ because of your struggles? Who might God want to lead to Christ because of a, a trial you're going through? Who might God want to encourage because of a trial you're going through? 
Let's just, just flip the page and thinking about our struggles in a different way. How can God use them rather than woe is me? How can I get attention? But how can God use these for the kingdom? If you're asking that question, He will. He will. And it'll be a beautiful thing. We catch sort of the epilogue, point number four. They finished well and rejoiced with the church at God's work. They finished well and rejoiced with the church at God's work. 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Got all those? There's Garden Grove, Anaheim, San Diego. Um, And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. That means that's the church that sent them out. That's the church that commended them. Again, we, we get fun with maps um, because I think it's, it's just great. So they come back through Lystra, through Iconium, to Antioch. And then it says they come down to Perga and they check with the churches there. They come to Italia, which was the port city. That's where you, you got a ship. And then they came all the way back over here to Antioch, their sending church. And this is the end of the first missionary journey in Acts. What we've done in a month... They did in about a year. And about 1,400 miles. So a little more than the, the week-long trip down to Tijuana. They did the work of God. What I love is they came back to their home church and they reported. And, and, and it says in verse 27, when they arrived, they gathered the church together. Okay, so we're going to say, here's what God did. They declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's a key phrase for what's coming in Acts. And we've been talking about Acts 1-8 as the roadmap, and now we're to, to the ends of the earth, how the gospel is going to Gentiles. This first missionary journey, they came back and said, it is. It is going to the Gentiles. There is an open door. The fields are ready for harvest. God is doing a work. And village, the fields are still ready for harvest. And the door is still open because the Holy Spirit's the one that opens the door. Not us. And, and they share what God has done. And it says in 28, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Basically, they stayed there a while. They got refreshed. They got encouraged. Some say maybe they stayed up to a year with them to sort of match the trip. But they reported on what God has done. This is why we love getting missionary reports. This is why we want to hear what our missionaries are doing. Because our hearts are with them. We want to know what is going on. We want to be encouraged by that. Whenever we go out and do God's work, come back and report to each other. Uh, Just a practical way to do this, and and a way that we're going to do this with the Titus Initiative. For those of us that weren't here last week, we started something for four weeks called the Titus Initiative. And the idea is, can we use gift cards to start gospel conversations? And um, as part of our benevolent ministry, helping people, what if we gave, gave gift cards and we each took some, one or two gift cards and we prayed that the Holy Spirit would put on our minds someone around us, a neighbor, a coworker, someone we see regularly, so someone that we know in some fashion, might we bless them with this? And say something like, hey, our church is doing this project and we just want to be a blessing to our community. Would you like this? 
and see where those conversations go. And so what we'd like to do, though, is have a way to report back. Like Paul and Barnabas did, they came and reported back. How do we do this? And so outside of the table were the gift cards. By the way, there's a, we've refreshed all the gift cards. So there's more to take today. Let, let's be a blessing. Let's start the gospel conversations. But on that same table are little cards that say, this is how God worked. This is how God worked. And I encourage you, if you gave them out to someone, don't use names of anyone. We're, we're not looking for names. But you can say, hey, I gave it to the cashier at the grocery store. And we got to talk about God in this way. Or I gave it to this person. I, I, I know that, that we're looking, the Holy Spirit has put on, on our hearts this, this one lady that works with Sue's every couple of weeks in some of the medical procedures. And they've developed a relationship. She doesn't know God at all. And so we're going to try. We're, th- that's this Wednesday. And, and so, but grab a card and say, this is how God worked. And then there's cork boards on the wall. That wasn't just sort of a cute thing that, that Pastor Ron did on the wall. It's functional. Um, I'd like you to take one of those cards and take a push pin after you've written on it and just put it on the cork board. And like a, I'd like us to fill that cork board with ways God is working and ways God has used this to work in the vein of Paul and Barnabas coming and reporting back. And let's see what God does. The end of the first missionary journey. Today, we've seen Satan try to stop it with lies. Lies about them, with slander, with mistaken fame, with success, with physical harm. And in every case, they, they faithfully stayed at it. They stayed the course. That's what we're called to do. As you are witnesses for Christ, you're going to have people that scoff. You're going to have people that don't understand. Stay the course. Be a witness. If you quit at that point, you've witnessed something else. You're a witness to the wrong thing. But stay the course. Because what Jesus has done for us with forgiveness of sins and being crucified for us, bearing our sins, and then raising again on the third day, that is worth a little bit of scoffing. That is worth a little bit of discomfort. Village, let's make sure everyone in our circles knows that we're believers and knows who Jesus Christ is. And let's make a difference for Him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your Word. Lord, this passage has spoken to me powerfully this week. As as I think through times where I've been discouraged and think through times where I, I just coast. And Lord, help this passage to remind us to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit, to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, and to keep doing your work with a passion. Thank you for the example of Paul and Barnabas. Thank you for how the church spread and that we are here today worshiping largely because of this work. Lord, may we continue your work as a faithful church to the gospel. In your name, amen.